The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? And welcome back to Cancelled Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. And my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for lots of places. What am I, what am I a film critic for? The Wrap. <laughs> you write for The Wrap. I'm yeah. totally spaced on this. You write for Bloody Disgusting. Bloody Disgusting. IGN, IGN. Critically acclaimed. And uh, you know what? Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, same here. All counts. I don't currently write for The Wrap. You have written there once. Once. I have one one review published on the rap. What was it for again? <laughs> it, oh, golly. It was um, that really rotten family drama oh. with uh, with Jane Fonda and uh, Jason Bateman. Oh, oh. It's uh, all about I, I even the, forgot the title of it's it. It's all about the yesterdays. Sure. Meet, meet the Fa- Smiths. And and the tagline was undoubtedly "Family is a sentence." Was it the family fang? Is that what it was? <laughs> the family fang, yeah. and it was about uh, yeah. One uh, the member of the family had died, and the the other members of the family had gathered around to mourn the passing of this one character, but then sort of go through their own heavy crap. This is where I leave you. That was the title. This is where I feeling sort of kinda. <laughs> Uh, And it was, yeah, it was a completely bland film, and I had to really strain to find something to say about it. Mm. Well, uh, Mm. we're not talking about that this week. No, we're going to be talking about uh, an HBO series with a really, really good pedigree. Oh, fantastic. That just was quashed after ten episodes. Just just nobody, it never found an audience. This Mm -hmm. is a series uh, that comes to us from... Uh, one of our listeners, we had a sweepstakes mm-hmm. uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, and one of the listeners got to pick an episode of Cancelled Too Soon. Of their choice, the winner was Zachary Bach, and Zachary Bach wanted a little show called Here and Now. Must be cool, having siblings from these like exotic places. It could have been Mm-mm. if we weren't advertisements for how progressive our parents were. Feel change so much hatred going around. Feels like the world's falling apart. It's a brand new day. It feels like there's something outside of me pushing me off balance. Because the whole country's a mess right now. There's a power deep inside of me. Hi. You remember your birth, Mom, right? Don't start looking behind you. You might not like what you find. What if I'm crazy? Are you the next step in human evolution? Because I'd want to know that. In the morning, we'll wake up to sleep at night. I just wanted my own thing. 
but I've made my peace being the boring white chick in the family. Something is trying to communicate with me. Ramon might be losing his mind. We can't just do nothing. I don't think it's an accident I'm your psychiatrist. Now, I can tell you one of the problems with the show right away. Mm. I couldn't, even while I was watching it, I couldn't remember the title of the show. Mm. Like I, feeling sort of, kind of. Yeah, it was, it was like here and now. I kept wanting to call it like now and then or now and again. Mm-hmm. Or the le- two less other is, popular shows. Less is more, Black and Decker, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Farm remember. and Hammer. <laughs> Cagney and Lacey. Mm-hmm. I could not remember here and now. Until I finally, like, maybe halfway through the series, it finally stuck. Well, because they say it over and over again. It's the title of a book that Tim Robbins' character wrote. Mm. Uh, So Here and Now, Here and Now is a series that ran on HBO really recently, actually, from February 11th to April 15th, 2018. Uh, It was created by Alan Ball, who rose to really immediate acclaim for writing American Beauty, which Mm. I think nowadays people look back on with a sort of a shrug. Because well, it's, it's really dated. It, it, it dated really fast. Uh, nobody wants to see Kevin Spacey anymore. Right. And, but uh, even beyond that, the, the material is kind of mm-hmm. gross. And it's sort of, it's attempt to make into high drama, bourgeois, midlife crisis yeah, kind of nonsense, really. It, it, it feels mm-hmm. like the, feels like I really hyped up ugly stepchild of like Paul Mazursky and Mike Nichols, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, but it was it was his own thing. And yeah, um, it was his own thing. Uh, the critic Amy Nicholson has a really funny story about American beauty, how just how into it we were in 1999. Like how the world was really about American beauty. Mm-hmm. We were deep because this it was, was a hit. It made 100 million dollars. Yeah, what one best picture, won a bunch of Oscars and um, at the time it felt like we're really Putting on a putting a button on something that had been just sort of in the culture throughout the decade, mm. which was that sort of dissatisfaction with suburban comfort. The baby boomers going boom. Yeah, ba- ba- the the whole Gen Xers kind of being able to thumb their nose at baby boomers. Baby boomers saying, "Yeah, things just didn't work out the way we wanted, even though we're really wealthy." And uh, Amy Nicholson talks about how people would go to parties. She was in college when it came out and how she and a bunch of peers would go to college parties and they'd just be sitting there kind of bummed out. And they, she she remembers like having conversations. Hey, man, what's on? Are you OK? No, man, I'm really bummed out. I just saw American Beauty and it was really intense. <laughs> like it, it was really overwhelming a lot of our minds. And uh, I think just like three or four years later, it was all already seen as kind of passe. Mm. Like, people were already making fun of it a few years later. But it was important at the time, and it got Alan Ball, the screenwriter, a lot of uh, important television projects, including Six Feet Under, which Uh, was a hugely acclaimed show, um, as well as True Blood, which I haven't seen. I've seen seen some of Six Feet Under, and I have Mm. enormous respect for it. It just wasn't quite my jam. Okay. Um, But Six Feet Under was a story of a family that runs a funeral home, um, and uh, it is perhaps most famous for having one of the most tear-jerking series finales in television history. Um, <laughs> the, 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 that is the epilogue, not just the finale. Yeah, yeah. but like the last like few minutes of Six yeah. Feet Under is considered like the saddest few minutes in well, TV history. Because they work at a funeral home, the prologue of our episode was... Someone died. The, yeah, the last few minutes of the body's life. The, yeah. The person who died, who's like just coming to the funeral home, we get to see the last few minutes of their life. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, the the series finale, not to give it away, but we got to see all of the characters that we've been following for seven seasons. They each got a little bumper like that. Yeah. yeah. Eventually, like an animal they, house. eventually they were all going to die because they're human beings. Mm. And so they just without telling you who died when or why or whatever. Yeah. We, at the end of the series, you get to see all of them. <laughs> and it's devastating, even if in a vacuum. Like, even if you don't even know the characters, just seeing that many, like, tragic deaths, <laughs> like, in a row, or beautiful deaths, or f- funny Poet- deaths. Poetic yeah, deaths, yeah. It's just kind of harrowing, and it's really confrontational. I appreciated this. It's a very confrontational series about mm. death. We don't like to talk about death, and when we do talk about death, it's usually because someone we know has just died. Mm. And so we're feeling really intense feelings, and we're not really feeling very philosophical. So when you're looking at people for whom death is their day job... Uh, you get different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of respect for it. Just not the sort of thing, as someone who's somewhat death-phobic, mm-hmm. not the sort of thing I would watch for fun. But right. whenever I saw an episode, I had a girlfriend at the time who was really into it. Like, I nothing but respect for it. Uh, True as, Blood. As, as someone who's death-philic, I was all about it. Okay. <laughs> Weird. Okay, uh, True Blood uh, um. was based off of... Uh, uh, vampire novels. People like vampire novels, and it's all about uh, vampires in the deep south in a world where they have come up with a fake blood substitute that has all the nutritional properties of blood. So vampires can finally, as they call it repeatedly in the show, come out of the coffin. And it was a very belabored metaphor. Alan Ball is gay, by the way. (laughs) And it's a very belabored metaphor Uh. for uh, people, specifically people in the Deep South, uh, suddenly being forced to interact with uh, people who normally would be uh, repressed or shunned from society. Mm. And uh, it was intensely sexual. Uh, Well, HBO... Yeah, uh, greenlit series because they were confrontationally sexual. Like, and if they weren't, they would make it so. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really wanted to make sure you know their premium cable. Yeah, you're going to go to this show. They're going to make sure you hear a lot of cussing and see a lot of breasts and sex and uh, a lot of just horrendous violence. So most yep. of the the hit HBO shows. Had that sometimes to a fault. Like I've pushing seen, the envelope. I yeah. haven't seen any episodes of Deadwood. I've seen scenes from Deadwood, and you can tell there's a guy who goes in there with, like, just a box full of fucks and just starts <laughs> sprinkling them throughout. It's like the screenwriter's completed his his draft, and then somebody comes in with this big box and just throws a bunch of F-words in it. Yeah. He's like, no, people don't... A, I'm not sure if people in the Old West spoke like... Nobody speaks like that. Well, I mean, people, people swore, but, like, we were so... Deadwood was interesting because, A, a it was a good show, but, B, uh-huh. that whole... Takeaway. There was an episode of Scrubs where they were talking about seeing Deadwood, and then Zach Braff was like, "Did you know cowboys swore?" <laughs> and I think one of the things there was this big sudden like break off because westerns were not popular when Deadwood came out. Mm. They were we had a few. Never the genre never died completely, but yeah. they weren't contemporary. There weren't a lot of contemporary ones. And um, when what the type of Wild West that Deadwood portrayed, which is way more like Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Okay. Uh, in terms of just like kind of repulsive, um, was so not the sanitized version of the West that people were used to. Even the Clint Eastwood movies, you know, they weren't necessarily swearing a lot. They were violent, but that's as far as they ever went. Mm-hmm. So when you see Deadwood just make it just kind of prurient and and gross, yeah, and smart and fun and all the other things Deadwood was, but we're only talking about this one part. Um, that was something that really took people aback. Uh, we, we talked about this recently in one of our other podcasts, but 
history, you know, movies and TV are bad history. Even the best ones are bad history. They're just mm. not wholly accurate. Uh, but they shape the way we think about the past and the same way we visualize it. Yeah. And Deadwood kind of flew in the face of that. And I think mm. it really took people by storm. But anyway, Alan Ball. But, uh, but fast forwarding to uh, here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, or rather, a year ago. A year ago, when here and now debuted. Um, the goal of Alan Ball, I mean, Alan Ball, what, even though he did have uh, you know sex and cussing in his shows, it was more in a, a much more natural way, and he wanted to not like, in true dr- blood. Pardon? Not, well, not not, well, not true, in true blood. True, true blood. True blood was decadent. True blood would have been porn if it could have been. You know, <laughs> yeah. just hardcore pornography. Yeah. Um, but Alan Ball's interests, looking at Six Feet Under, looking even at, at American Beauty, he wanted to address. Uh, Sexuality and and you know social issues and uh, and faith and uh, you know in, interfaith relationships and the way people are constantly trying to struggle with the relationships they have with those around them in a more confrontational way mm-hmm. and HBO is a good place for him to do that so he could write these really sort of confrontational stories about people who are having faith and sexuality crises openly yeah. Uh, so here and now is the story of a family. Uh, the uh, what was it? The the Boatwright Bear family is it Boatwright Bear or is it Bear Boatwright? Oh no, no, I don't. Bear Boat. It's the Bear Boatwright family. Okay, good. Then we're good. Uh, the Bear Boatwright family. Uh, the patriarch and matriarch are uh, baby boomer liberals in mm-hmm. Portland. And they have adopted most of their children. They have one biological child. Yep. Uh, they have. Five kids in all. Uh, there's okay. Hold, hold on. Let's let's go. Let's go. Let's go one by one. So right. uh, uh, our our protagonists are played by the patriarch is Tim Robbins. Uh-huh. Uh Tim Robbins plays a philosopher who wrote a book called Here and Now, which was about living in the moment. If you live mm-hmm. in the past, you're filled with resentments. You live in the future, you're filled mm-hmm. with anxiety. You live in the here and now. Mm-hmm. You can live a fulfilling life. And he's he's, he's an built ag- his entire career on yeah. that basically. And, and he's an optimistic. Uh, existentialist and mm-hmm. i think he's modeled after robert solomon who's a famous existentialist professor okay uh he was in, he was in waking robert solomon was in waking life oh, okay yeah. uh at the start of the of the series uh greg boatwright uh tim robbins character uh is going clearly going through a crisis he's turning 60 and he no longer believes in the philosophies he once espoused mm. and he's been very depressed uh his wife is audrey bayer played by holly hunter She's a therapist, but we don't see her do a lot of that. She's actually part of... She spends most of her time uh, doing an empathy initiative at schools, Mm. trying to teach uh, kids in these increasingly turbulent times how to understand each other, how to listen to each other, Mm. in an attempt to stave off many of the... Excuse me. Uh, social crises in which we currently find ourselves, mm. uh, but that's obviously harder than it sounds, and it sounds well, really hard. It, it's uh, the show was released in 2018, and it takes place in 2018, so it's uh, also a very here and now is also a very appropriate title in that it's trying to tackle all the issues we're dealing with this year. So it takes place with a lot of racial turmoil in high schools. What happens when a a young student does something brazenly racist? How are we dealing with that in the media? How, you know, how, how are these, uh, 
well-to-do liberals dealing with the Trump administration. Yeah, like Tim Robbins has has a bit, several times actually, mm-hmm. where he talks about how, you know, in, in his generation when they were, I mean, he's not from the 60s, but it was still from an era where there were, there were protests, there was civic-mindedness, there mm-hmm. were people uh, actively trying to take down the establishment. And somehow, after all of that effort... They have become bourgeois. They've become very sedentary, and and what the bad were, guys won. Yeah, and what, and what they were fighting came back even bigger than it was before. Yeah, so it's yeah. easy to get really demoralized. Meanwhile, they have a bunch of kids, and they're all screwed up. Uh, so there is Ashley, played by Jerrica Hinton. Uh, she is uh, she was adopted. She's originally from Liberia, uh, and now she uh, owns a retail fashion store slash. Website. She owns a website and it also has a storefront. And she says in one episode that the storefront is more or less an ad for the website. Yeah, like actually, she doesn't make a lot of money from the the storefront. Yeah, she actually regrets opening it. Uh, she has a husband. Her husband is white, which leads to a lot of mm. you know just daily strife. Yeah, Ash- Ashley is black. We should mention that. Well, from Liberia, yeah. and uh, and uh, and they have a daughter who is uh, four years old and only just starting to notice that race has a factor in her life. Yeah. In ways that are little girl ways, but like mm-hmm. she's starting to notice and, I, and starting to become al- relevant. Also, Ashley is a workaholic, mm-hmm. so um, she's really concerned that her daughter is more closely connected with her father than with her. Yep. Uh, then we have their uh, son, Duke. Mm-hmm. Uh, Duke is played by Raymond Lee. Uh, Duke is from Vietnam. Uh, he was adopted uh, when he was a little older, so he remembers more of his childhood. Um, and, and now he had a he's a really harrowing childhood. Yeah, it's really quite bad. We'll talk about that. But uh, he has become like a self help guru. Yeah. And he believes in self actualization and the importance of exercise and personal drive. And, uh, yeah, and, and he's like super athlete and he's always exercising. And he also preaches uh, celibacy, which is actually chastity. It's. I, it's not quite the same thing. Well, celibacy means not being married, technically. Mm. But people use celibacy and chastity sort of interchangeably now. I actually didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, so he, he tells everyone he's not having sex. Is he actually not having well, sex? Well, go to Canada and he is. Yes. Yeah, so apparently Vancouver is sex town, <laughs> which I didn't know about Vancouver. Um, okay, let's see. They have uh, another uh, son named Ramon, mm. played by Daniel Zavato. Ramon is, uh, he's originally from Columbia. They adopted him when he was a baby. And he he's a video game designer. Uh, he's just entered a relationship with a very sexy... Uh, Bearded barista dude. Yeah, yeah. Very, mm. very hot. Like, ooh, <laughs> my, my, my goodness. Mm. Um, and uh, he's also... Uh, showing signs potentially of either being schizophrenic mm. or, or being a prophet. <laughs> yeah, or, or being yeah, psychic in some way. He's seeing and, visions and it turns out some of his visions have actually like either some basis in reality mm. or of things that he couldn't possibly have been there for or remembered. Yeah. And that's one of the central conceits of the show is this one element of the fantastic. That's the only element of the fantastic. But well, that's and, the, and but it, that's that one keeps popping up in every episode, and and uh, it begins to affect his therapist, who's a, a main character on the show. But yeah. let's get to it. Finish up the kids. Their, uh, their final kid, and then uh, finally, sorry, I said five kids. It's only four. And then there's uh, uh, Kristen, played by Sosie Bacon. Uh, she is a junior in high school. She's 17 years old, and uh, she is 
Whereas a lot of her siblings, it's almost like the Royal Tenenbaums. They're all like overachievers or big artists or great yeah. thinkers. And she's young and is still discovering yeah, she's herself. Se- and she's she 17. She doesn't feel like she has her own identity. She talks about how, you know, she feels basically like, I'm white. What even is that? Uh, like, I, I'm this, nothing right now. And, and uh, yeah, she's like really sort of flip and confrontational. Yeah. She's taking control of her own life. She's you know, figuring out her life and her sexuality. And she's a definitely one of Alan Ball's favorite types of characters because mm-hmm. we had one in American Beauty and we also had one in Six Feet Under. Yes. They're all the same character. They they kind of are. Also, uh, who, no... Who, it was Thora Birch in American Beauty. Who Was it Lauren Ambrose? Uh, yeah, I think it was the, Lauren Ambrose, yeah. Who played that, that same character in Six Feet Under. And uh, and here, this is, this is one of the things that, for me, kept taking me out of the show completely because I will say this right now. Sozie Bagan... Really solid actor, very talented. Mm. Does not look seventeen. No, not she, even close. Like they cast all of these really young-looking actors, but around her, uh. and she looks solidly mid twenties. <laughs> There's no shame in that. There's nothing. That's not a problem. Really, well, I'm not, she I'm not dissing her in any way. Looking, it didn't. But it's pull still. Me it, out. It's, if I found it routinely distracting. No, uh, which is a shame because she's giving a really excellent yeah, she, performance. But yeah, she she's playing seventeen, but I think she was twenty-five when they shot the show. So, yeah. Um and uh, and yeah, so uh, Ramon in the first episode has uh, an episode. In front of everybody, where he's begun seeing the numbers eleven, eleven, everywhere he goes, and these mm-hmm. numbers seem to have some sort of great significance. Well, maybe because has, of some trauma in his past, or maybe something else. He's but, not just seeing the number; he ha- has like a, a legit vision, uh, like they're at of, the uh, of like fires like appear in his vi- like he has a, a hallucination in front of everybody. Four lines of fire, like the number eleven, eleven, yeah. and he, you know, he, everyone sees him. Seeing this, no one sees it along with him. Yeah, and he starts freaking out and screaming and rolling on the floor. All during uh, his dad's 60th birthday. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, and also his his dad is not just depressed. It turns out he's been having a regular affair with a sex worker. Uh, and the sex worker gifts him a sex toy, which will become a plot point later on. Yeah. Uh, the family takes Ramon to a uh, a therapist or a psychologist. Uh, Dr. Farid Shakrani, played by Peter McDesey, who is my understanding is also uh, Alan Ball's partner in real life. Oh, okay. That's my understanding? Yeah. Uh, I, I know he was in uh, in that film Towelhead, which uh, Alan Ball also wrote. Yeah. Uh, and he is... Uh, he was uh, raised in Iran. He was taken to America as a child. Mm-hmm. And he has completely rejected the Muslim faith, even though he has married a, a, a Muslim woman and his child believes... Uh, in that religion as well, uh, but he has completely rejected it, mm. and he's he's, he's, in, he's he's searching for answers in other ways. And when he meets Ramon, Ramon tells him about the visions he's been having, <clears throat> and it turns out Ramon has been seeing uh, Farid's mother in who, his dreams, in his dreams, and Farid's mother doing things that speaking m- Farsi, which neither of them speak. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, doing things mm. that nobody knows she did, like clawing her face, mm. like just she, she was bipolar. She was well, it, having it's an reveal, that she revealed later face. on. But yeah, she yeah. Was, she clawed, so, has these claw marks. There's no face. way this kid would know that. Mm. Spooky. It's it's spooky and it, and it freaks out the doctor and he begins to. I mean, he's he's openly rejecting the Muslim faith. He's he's you know confrontationally atheist, and he meets other uh, Muslims and 
kind of gets in their face about their faith a lot, but he's, which of course upsets his wife, who's like, well, I I know you don't believe, but you got to be a dick about it in front of me. Yeah, in public, Mm. right right in front of my salad. What are you doing? And (laughs) in front of my salad, Uh, and (laughs) 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 sorry, that's that's a reference to something else. Uh, And he's also uh, a, a little bit flummoxed by his son who is gender non-conforming and who is yeah. dress is transvestite and the son is trying to sort of figure out his own gender identity even though he still identifies as male and mm-hmm. goes out as male well he doesn't necessarily identify as male but well, he, he's agreed to his father that he won't mm-hmm. he, he will identify he will he will dress male and present as male mm-hmm. in public yeah and the father said the father says i I don't care. I wish the world were kinder, but I, yeah, I, I'm afraid for your safety. It's hard enough being Muslim mm. in in America today. It's a very turbulent time. And I'm worried is, that if you add this other layer onto it, you will become a target for violence. And the son mm. understands that. You can tell it really bothers him. And there's a scene later on where he finally gets to just hang out mm. with uh, Kristen as himself and yeah, dressed in a hijab and dressed with nice makeup and and he just feels all of a sudden infinitely more comfortable mm. and it's lovely it's it's very He's, sweet yeah. um one of the messages of the show this takes place in portland oregon which yeah. is a like super liberal haven uh there there's even been a comedy show called portlandia about how ridiculously liberal <laughs> the city is mm. um i remember a sketch in portlandia where they're going to a, a concert in the park and it's such a <laughs> progressive hippie concert that it's just like people in dresses waving feathers through the air not making any noise <laughs> like P- portland is like yeah it's re- s- silly liberal yeah it's a nice and, town and, though you ever been yeah i've been there yeah uh, uh, powell powell's books best uh, bookstore probably in america i, I agree uh, powell's books awesome is amazing bookstore. i have gone to powell's it's like a city block it's astounding mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I could have spent all day. I spent oh, three yeah. hours there, and it wasn't enough. And oh, yeah. uh, I've also been to uh, Movie Madness, mm. one of the greatest video stores in the whole world. I'm not sure if it's even still open, but uh, Movie Madness was the first video store I saw that had a section uh, that was sectioned off by director. Mm. They had like obscure TV movies, and you go down a hallway into the back, and you go into the psychotronic section, <laughs> and it was all of like the weird, like weird off the wall. Yeah, you know, exploitation movies that you've always heard whispered about. Uh, um, we uh, we we went there as like me, my sister, and a couple friends, and we ended up renting a film called Oversexed Rug Suckers from Mars. Ah, uh, classic. Which is on Blu-ray now. Yes, it <laughs> They're is. just digging everything out of the trash heap. Uh, if you if you like our theme music for some of our other podcasts, mm. like uh, All Our Yesterdays or uh, Critically Acclaimed, the music is done by Clutch Douglas. Clutch Douglas. It's spelled with two S's. Douglas. Uh, did a song called Portland, which is about going to Portland. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. got a great chorus. Going to Portland without my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, yeah. Portland is ridiculously liberal and accepting, and this is about how uh, intolerance is invading. Mm-hmm. Or it's always it, been or, there. They talk about it. Invading their lives. They talk yeah. a big game, but you know, this is a story mm-hmm. that's incredibly di- incredibly diverse cast. Mm-hmm. Um, but and even how- though they're in Portland, even though it seems like this is a haven from all of the turmoil and tumult in the world, 
it's there too. Yeah. And it might not seem as bad as it is elsewhere, but it can still be no. really quite terrible. One of the things with this show, and we'll talk about the plot, the plot's a little ornate and it doesn't really make sense to do it episode by episode. Well, we I get, we can do it character by character, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, what we have here is a story of, again, diversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to explore diverse experiences. Well, and, but, and also the here and now. We're trying to address everything that's going on in the news in, in a dramatic uh, venue. One of the things that really frustrated me about here and now, because there's, there's a lot to like about the show. The performances are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some really good writing here and there. Um, but that diversity storyline, it's not diverse in terms of class. No. It's incredibly bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you can tell good stories about the bourgeois. I, a, a movie I quite liked, a lot of people, other people didn't because it's bourgeois as hell, mm-hmm. is uh, This is 40. And I, oh, think yeah, it's, yeah. and I think even though you can roll your eyes at all of the plot because it's all solved with, you know, like, oh, I'll just sell my original John Lennon art. <laughs> no, you're, you're too bourgeois. Two bourgeois, kill it back. Uh, but, or a, a, a one that I heard was uh, Rachel Getting Married, the Jonathan mm, Demi film. That's yeah. about incredibly rich people having horrendous crises, and yeah. that's actually a really emotionally uh, touching movie. Well, the, the idea is that you know affluence doesn't lead to happiness necessarily. Mm. Malaise still sets in, but there's a certain amount of when you're watching a movie, you're only watching it for about two hours. You get away with it. You watch 10 hours of Here and Now. It's a 10-episode show. And, and that's, that's HBO hours, so those are proper hours. Full hours, yeah. every single time, sometimes more. Um, it, there's a limitation to it. And after a while, you start realizing that as much as there is to say about these characters, they're all trapped within a very small bubble. Mm-hmm. And there's something that... I don't know. Reads a little disingenuous to me after a while. Where we're exploring it, we're exploring it, but I feel like there's an element of navel gazing involved. Well, wealth doesn't protect you from pain and misery and having these crises. No, but I feel like they're allowed to ponder all of these big philosophical and existential ideas because they don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from. That's that's fair. One of the one of the most like frankly horrific scenes in the entire series from a character we're supposed to like. Um, so that uh, that barista that Ramon uh, falls in love with, mm. they're great together for about half the series. Uh, they share a lot. They ex- you know they yeah. they expand yeah. each other's horizons. Now, the character is named Henry. He's played by Thank an actor you. named Andy Bean. Andy Bean, Whew. good <laughs> actor, good actor, but also what a beard! <laughs> it's just the beard. The isn't beard it? is incredible. I, I would mm. kill for that beard. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, he finds out, and this is the end of the whole storyline. Maybe they would have gone somewhere in the sequels, mm. uh, future seasons. But uh, he finds out that, uh, sorry, was it Andy you said? Henry. Henry. Mm. Henry has been keeping something from him. Henry is homeless. Mm. That's it. He, he has a job. But he's living out of his out of a car, living in a in a tent town, mm. and. Rather than use that to open up a conversation about class, uh, he is furious at Henry for keeping the secret from him, kicks him out and like tells him he wants his key back because clearly you're only dating me so you can use my shower. And his mom and dad, who are supposedly all like, you know, liberal and sentimental and woke, say, yeah, he did betray you. 
And I'm like, I think you betrayed him. Like, he didn't share something shameful with you after you've been dating for, like, a few weeks. And, well, and, and like, it was it was also explained that they were really connecting on sort yeah. of a, a, this really profound level. The, the only thing they didn't connect on was that... Uh, Ramon is a video game designer, and Henry didn't play video games. Mm. That was it. Like that's the only sort of rift between them, and that that was more vocational than it was, you know, yeah, he's, spiritual or emotional he, or meaningful. He, he he was he mentions that he was he was raised in a rural area. Mm. He's homeless, so he doesn't have a lot of technology on him. Mm. He has a phone, but that's it. He's not terribly up to speed on it. It doesn't terribly interest him. Right, and rather but, than and rather than accept that as being okay, the, and I realize again, maybe in another season they would have well, dealt with it. But yeah, I, but I, from where it stands here, they just kick him out because he's because he's poor, and then he's gone. And boy, is it an ugly look. It's it, it's unfortunately one of those things that I can tell was going to be reopened, right? Because uh, Ramon does end up dating another guys and take and dating another guy over the course of the series. Mm-hmm. Nothing character. We don't get to know yeah, anything it, about it's him. It's just important that we see he's moved on. That, that he's moved on, but he also does the things with this new guy that he did with Henry. So he's still hung up on Henry. Clearly, they're going to go somewhere with this character. Mm. And the series ended before we got there. So yeah, the end of the arc is they kicked him out for being homeless and it makes them look really intolerant. Really bad. Yeah. Like, it's a really mm. bad look. Um, okay, how do you want to take this? How, where do you want to go? Oh, well, uh, I guess we can go with uh, Holly Hunter's character. I love Holly Hunter. Oh, one of the great she, actors. She's great. And, Fantastic. Um, What's yeah. your favorite Holly Hunter performance? Uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> broadcast News. Yeah, I was about to say Broadcast News. Broadcast News, news is, is I, I think it's her magnum opus. She's mm. absolutely stunning in that. But seriously, almost anything. Mm. She had an, she had Home, an Home for the Holidays is really good. Home too. for the Holidays is great. Uh, uh, Raising Arizona mm. is great. Did you ever see Living Out Loud? Yeah, I think I saw it with uh, Queen Latifah, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's good that. in that one, too. Um, yeah, she's The Firm. She was nominated for oh, Oscar nominated she have, like for the, two scenes in the first. No, she's got like five, but right. like she steals the show. Mm-hmm. Like she's amazing in it. She was nominated. For, she was Oscar nominated twice in the same year. Once for the piano, which she won, mm. and once for the firm, which is basically just like holy crap. We have to nominate her. She's so good in those scenes. <laughs> it's like Joan <laughs> Allen and Working Girl. You're just mm. sort of. I'm oh, sorry, Joan Cusack and Working oh. Girl, where she's not in it much, but yeah, she's. In the movie, <laughs> you don't miss her. Yeah, uh, her character Audrey is um, a complete control freak. Everybody's constantly confronting her about what a control freak she is, but she doesn't ever change her ways. She's sort of found that being in control is just her bag. And um, when she, there's trouble at a local high school, she's called in to do her empathy initiative, and that unfortunately sparks a really ugly backlash where some of the students hang in effigy, like mm-hmm. stage a mock lynching. And it's horrendously racist. The principal doesn't really, he's completely at a loss as to what to do. She talks to the, uh, Audrey ends up talking to the news. One of her statements is taken in a context where it sounds like she's saying it's okay. Well, here's what, what she was saying is what happened here is a crime. Mm. We need to figure out who did this, but we also need to use this to open a dialogue to explain why this is never no, okay. And also the, these kids are well, making, are making stupid mistakes. And someone asked, like, someone yeah. asked, should, should the, could the perpetrators be, be prosecuted? Should they be thrown in jail? Mm. And she was just like, well, we need to find out who did this, but 
yeah, they are kids and we need to approach this with empathy mm. and we need to hopefully turn this into a teachable moment. And that's the only bit they used. Mm. So she's gone a little viral as like the Nazi apologist mom. Right. Rather than someone who was trying to give a more nuanced perspective that honestly I don't even entirely agree with. But she was giving a more nuanced perspective. Well, I, I appreciate that she's trying to give a nuanced perspective. We're mm. in a time right now, though, where zero tolerance. Uh-huh. And that and she doesn't for pick intolerance. up on that. For intolerance. Zero tolerance for intolerance. Yeah. And uh, we're, she didn't pick up on that. So she's, mm. she's seeming a little backward and not saying the correct things. And so she's been thrown into a bit of a crisis. And she's really uh, distracted yeah. by, by this drama that she's going through. Uh, Duke is the most boring character. He doesn't. Doesn't have... interesting happens to Duke. Well, yeah, Duke. You know, he's... we find out real fast that he's a hypocrite. Like episode two. Yeah, this but, whole thing about well, and, and I, I, it's it's addressed in this one seat, like montage. So if you got to go to the go up to go to the bathroom and you missed that montage, you don't understand anything about Duke. <laughs> And in fact, it happens so quickly that I thought it was a fantasy. I did too, actually. Like, like he's he's celebrate, and that's how he wants to live. Like he's just horny all the time and wants to have sex with all of these women. Yeah, this and, could be just him visualizing yeah. all the sex he wishes he was having. But no, he's having sex with a lot of women whenever mm. he's uh, visiting his publisher in Vancouver. Mm. Um, Duke is frankly a blowhard. He's he, he's, he's really aggressive all the time and he really mm. wants everyone to really com- practice what he preaches. He's competitive like and on like outward bound excursions and bike rides, but n- not really in life and he doesn't have a lot of personal relationships that sort of enrich him. Yeah. And I think that's sort of his problem. He's he's sort of coming to acknowledge that he's not a very deep person. He's kind of Frank T.J. Mackey from Magnolia, but without the rampant misogyny. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, like, well, he's, he, just, he doesn't he, preach women are bad, he just preaches macho is good, even for women. Yeah, and and he's he's just as shallow as those bromides. He's not a philosopher, he's just a self-help guy, and that's all he aspires to be. He writes a book, mm. and he, uh, they ask, the publisher asks if his father, who wrote a famous book of philosophy, uh, would write the forward, mm. and Tim Robbins actually says, "I don't know what this is. I, I he's clearly trying to do the right thing. I, I don't disagree with him per se, mm. but there's n- I could do not connect with this at all." Which leads to a plot that gets completely dropped in actually kind of a uh, funny way. Uh-oh. So Tim Robbins, we've already mentioned, he's depressed. He doesn't. He no longer believes what he preaches. He thinks rather than focus on the here and now, focus on being good to each other. This is a time of such incredible upheaval that maybe we should all get really mad mm. and rise up and, and, well, and form a revolution. So he starts preaching to his students. Like he starts cussing at them. Just go like no class today. Go out and do something and. Uh, his story kind of comes to a head when he starts preaching Camus. <laughs> there, yeah. There's a scene where he starts talking about the myth of Sisyphus, and he essentially just describes the myth of Sisyphus, like yeah. Camus' philosophy. Yeah, describe how, it for people who don't know what that okay, is. Okay, um, so you know, you know the myth of Sisyphus, uh, the, the guy who rolls up a boulder guy, up a hill. The, in the afterlife, his punishment is to roll a boulder up to the top of a hill, and it rolls down at the end, and he has to do that for all eternity. And yeah, it's just keep rolling to, it back up. Uh, utter futility. Uh, Camus. Uh, Algerian philosopher um, uh, said that you know, we shouldn't look to that as a sort of a sign of futility. In fact, when you're pushing the boulder up the hill, reach the top, when he's rolling down, he's kind of accomplished something at the end of that. And rather than thinking about sort of the ultimate futility of that, uh, he can just sort of go down, look at his rock, and think of his rock is now his job. 
and he can become the best boulder pusher there is. And uh, in, in sort of a modern parlance, he says, you make your rock your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim and, Robbins describes that as a, an absurdist hero. Yeah, and that, that's know, what Camus described it as. You yeah. know, life is meaningless. There's no meaning. The universe doesn't care about you. There's nothing out there looking at you. Trying so, is heroic. Yeah, so so continuing to to just do your thing, keep your head down, essentially, uh, can make you into, can give your life meaning. Um, Some people find a lot of hope in that. I find that kind of a, a depressing philosophy. Oh, but, I, yeah. I, I actually find a lot of hope in that, yeah. so there you go. Yeah. Well, you know what they say about Camus. You're going to make some horrible pun. I know you well, are. Well, no, Camus can do, but Sartre is Smartre. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and they both spend a lot of their time weeping on the beach. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's trying to find meaning, and he ends up finding some meaning in Camus. Yeah, he, uh, he's, he, he, yeah, he's, um, but there's, there's more to it than that. Mm. Again, he's been having an affair. He has been sleeping with a sex worker. His wife finds out about that in a way that's, pretty embarrassing the the well, sex worker he's been seeing for his birthday gets him a a pardon my french uh-huh. a cock sling which, which a, a thing i had not really seen before <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's something i had heard of it's got it's kind of a ring but it's it's got a way that's it's, sort of a, it's a, a ring with like a little tentacle on it a little you, tentacle you on it your that, imagination. That, that tickles other parts of you and um he leaves it in his car, and then Holly Hunter yeah, he, finds he, it, and she's like, "What is this?" Uh, takes a picture of it. Hey, kids, what's this? And he tries to. The, kid, he tries, the kids all know what it is, and they're all really kind of chuckling at mom. He tries to write it off as, "Oh, I got this for us, for our sexes," because their, their sex life is in the dumps. He's like, oh, "Ah, no, sixty might. years old, have been married for thirty uh, years, and you know, it's bound to take a dive." But uh, he was like, "No, okay, I got this for us," and she's like, "Oh, okay, that's kind of sweet." And then she finds out he's been taking out three hundred dollars a week week every single week well, he, he and, leaves, and he's been leaving his like emails out yeah, and left, he left some emails out to, to the sex worker for her to find there's a, but there's, he, he had called it off yeah but he left the email it doesn't well, matter he'd been having the affair for she, a while she points out that the issue is obviously she she's apparently she never cheated on him mm. um and she took great pride in that <sighs> but uh yeah what, when she saw the emails the thing that stood out to her was when he said things like I know what it's like to want someone for the first time, and I can't remember how long, and that mm. kind of thing. And that makes her feel like shit, mm. as you can imagine. <laughs> and, well, rightfully so. Yeah, That's that cool. would be terrible. Yeah. So she kicks him out, and they're on their marriage is on the rocks. And, and, and he's, he's been so depressed and aggressive that he's not at all apologetic when he finds out. He's just says, I was lost. Yeah, I did that, mm-hmm. because my life was terrible, and our sex life was terrible. Like, he just says all that right to her face. I love their relationship together, because mm. even after all of that... They still depend on each other. They're still mm. parents, but and they can still talk to each other on the phone if they have to. They're just too connected to completely sever everything over even that. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I actually really like about here and now is when it explores the depth of connection oh, between family and people in, in unusual situations well, and how, how complicated relationships are. Yeah. So in a movie, these things tend mm. to get resolved pretty pretty quickly. Mm. No. You yeah. don't just you don't just cut to an epilogue after they break up. They still have to do all their shit, mm. and there's something I find very hopeful about that. Yeah, and also uh, this deals with mental illness. Um, mm. Audrey is also dealing with Ramon, who has had this vision, and she is deathly afraid that he's going to turn into her brother. Their uncle Ike, who's mm-hmm. only alluded to, we see him later, mm-hmm. who is uh, played, of course, by Ted Levine. Oh, uh, Ted Levine's great. Uh, Ted, Ted Levine is great. He's got like two. He's got like three scenes. In- 
in the whole show, two of them in the last episode. But he he plays like weirdos and maniacs so well. It seems kind of sort of like gimme casting. Yeah, you know Ted Levine. He was he was uh, Jamie Gum. He was in, he was in he the was, Silence of the Lambs. He was as uh, James Gum. J- no, it wasn't James. Jamie Gum or Jame. or James Gum. Yeah, they they say both. Anyway, he's he was he was Buffalo Bill in uh, <laughs> in Silence of the Lambs. Mm. He was also uh, the the evil truck driver in Joyride. He was the uh, the de- main character, the detective in The Mangler. We do not speak of The Mangler, Whitney. Uh-oh. I thought we made this agreement. I I, brought, I just brought it up. <laughs> what are you going to do about that? Kick you off the podcast. <laughs> Toby Hooper's The Mangler. Going to replace you with Brendan Meyer. <laughs> Who never talks about The Mangler. I, don't, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> Little schmodown humor there, yeah. um, but uh, yeah, uh, Ramon is having these visions. Uh, Uncle Ike is schizophrenic, and he's been on meds for most of his life. And so uh, Audrey is deathly afraid that Ramon is going down a similar path, and that that really scares her. <clears throat> Ramon, meanwhile, is trying to uh, kind of use his therapy as a way of sort of distancing himself from his mother's uh, control freakness, mm. and uh, he is having these visions and kind of you seeing them as a spiritual journey he's going on. Mm, he starts seeing a significance in them rather as something that needs to be yeah. shunned. And he starts kind of sloughing off that idea onto his, his therapist, uh, Farid. Yeah, like he, he, he is not making any real sense of this. He's just sort of experiencing like these intense visions mm-hmm. and using the video game that he's designing, which mm-hmm. is, um, I'm not hip to a lot of video game lingo, but I think it's what they call a walking simulator. Um, it's kind of a puzzle game. It's basically mm. it's basically like Mist, but more dream logic than actual logic. Although yeah. Mist has some pretty nebulous logic anyway. But mm. um, but yeah, it's gorgeous. You walk around it. It's sort of a, a dreamlike experience, and and he's putting a lot of his visions. He, even unwittingly, he's been putting a lot of his visions into this game. Yeah. And, and to the extent where he doesn't remember putting some things in there, and he starts yeah, wondering if his well, game and, is talking to him. Yeah, and he, well, and he de- indeed he starts seeing this like one of his visions is like this thing that's appearing in the game. Yeah, um, yeah. But meanwhile, his therapist is the one who's actually trying to solve the meaning of these visions, mm-hmm. and begins and- because the visions involve the therapist's mother. And you know, phrases in Farsi, he starts having sort of a spiritual crisis. Because he's now forced to believe in something that he had previously dismissed. Yeah, his initial reaction is this is, is this some sort of elaborate hoax mm-hmm. that they, they did some research on me. But then he starts dreaming in Spanish, which he doesn't speak. And dream, yeah, starts dreaming of Ramon's birth mother. Yep. And then he starts uh, finding out that his dreams are starting to become prophetic. Like he dreams of this uh, liquor store. Where apparently his uncle owned and ran when they moved to America. And then when he goes to the liquor store, they have a box waiting for him. That's like, like yeah, they, stuff. they never took this box away. It's for you and your mm. uncle. I'm so glad you stopped by. Would you mind taking this box? And the box. Oh Th- this, this, this whole bit with the, the box and, and, mm. and Farid, like this, this part got me the, <laughs> the worst. The box, in, the box contains a bunch of junk, you know, old VCR or whatever, but it also has an answering machine. And on the answering machine is a message from his mom. Mm. His mom, it turns out, did call him, and his uncle never told him that mm. she called a lot. 
I, th- that made me cry. Oh, <laughs> really yeah. and, it's cry. and it's like, and it's him. Like he's listening to his mm-hmm. mom and he, he doesn't know what she's saying. Cause he doesn't speak the language mm-hmm. and, uh, his, his wife does. And she translates it for him. And it's a message. It's a very loving message. But then he starts recovering more and more memories of what happened to him. And what happened to him was as a child, uh, he did something very he, dangerous. He defaced, I think, a, uh, he a defaced propaganda a, a, a poster. poster of the Ayatollah. Yeah. Uh, and the mom, being A, justifiably concerned for their safety, but B, also being bipolar, um, took that out in a really bad fashion and took him out and had him publicly flagellate himself until his back was permanently scarred. Uh, and when his uncle tried to pull him away and, and take him away for his own mm. safety, the mother started ripping at her own face. Yeah, yeah. And then he never saw her again, and he thought that that was it, and she well, didn't I, love him, and I, then it turns out at least she did. I mean, maybe it wasn't healthy. Well, but. The, the uncle had also said that, she, like, she had died, and would yeah. never, And as it turns out, she not only did she live, but she was constantly trying to contact him. Yeah. And he's incredibly torn about that, because he, you know, these are very loving messages from a mother that... I guess he had some positive feelings about, but yeah, yeah. also was a, well, a, a and, horrendously abusive. And yet you do take, mm. you know, some. it's easy to see the uncle's side. It's if you assume mm. that he actually cares about the kid, which he took him out of that household, clearly he cares somewhat. Mm. Um, you were a child, you would have been incredibly confused by the fact that she said she loves you, and you would have wanted back into an abusive relationship. Mm. So he made a really tough call. I can't say I necessarily approve, but I get it. Yeah, yeah. There's a frustrating thing with this whole subplot, though, because as much as I, I what's the actor's name again? He plays Fareed because he's really good. Um, hold on, uh, Peter McDesey. Peter McDesey. Yeah. Uh, if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize. He's fantastic in this whole mm. bit, and I actually really admire the way that he and the series portray someone who has thinks they have uh, gotten over their childhood trauma, but sees there's so much more left to explore that it is capable of breaking him down and making him completely mentally ill, Mm. uh, incapacitatedly so, uh, once again. I think it's a very sensitive portrayal of that. It is frustrating, though, that in this story of diversity and tolerance that the actual portrayal of people in Iran Mm. is overwhelmingly negative, like really just horrifyingly yeah, well, not, not even from a political perspective mm-hmm. just the one person we see and in fact the people that our heroes took their adopted kids away from are all monsters and they're all women because it turns out that Duke's mother was mm-hmm. a sex worker who like got him a dog bed so he could be next to her while she was taking her clients to bed mm-hmm. so he and got to, to just see his be right there next to him while his yeah, mom was having sex which with is his just men. really horrifying and obviously it messed him up a yeah, lot he was also he, really malnourished uh, yeah. Tim Robbins mentions that he had to he was five years old and had to feed him with a bottle like he was so he was like practically dead when they found him and, and you just gotta ask yourself like who does who benefits mm. from this very specific choice you had to portray not America in these really ugly ways through the perspective of negligent moms like there's something mm. just kind of gross about it that like yeah, well, not bougie moms are portrayed as uniquely mm. horrifying well, moms of, from other cultures one and of those the, cultures are uh, yeah it's gross again this this is a, a liberal bougie family in portland so that one of the huge one of the big overriding themes of this whole show is liberal guilt 
about you know yeah. being the rich survi- you know the guilt of being the rich survivor of seeing yourself as the savior whether or not you actually are yeah. and uh, I I think they're trying to. Uh, I admire Alan Ball for actually trying to traverse that because that's kind of a difficult thing to look at. True, um, and it's it's not something we see in in drama a lot. It's called here and now. He's really, really trying to address everything that's happening immediately. Mm. Uh, yes, it was uh, disturbing that there was this recurring theme of abusive mothers. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and and multicultural abuse. Well, yeah, multi- like, uh, non ab- non abusive mothers from other nations. Yeah. yeah, like that's the only kind of mothers we see from that from anywhere that is in yeah. America, oh. and that's that's kind of gross and that, and it bugs me. And we do not see Ashley's uh, birth family, mm-hmm. uh, and Ashley's drama is all all racially based. Um, well, she, mostly she's got some work stuff too. But well, that's true. She uh, she's unhappy with. Not unhappy with her marriage, but she's clearly happier when she's sort of canoodling with the hot male models that come through her her, uh, mm-hmm. her uh, uh, business. She's taking drugs and not necessarily telling her husband about that. And either. her husband's not even mad about the like drugs. He's, he's just mad that she's not doing them with him. Yeah. And what and, she, and, and she's not an addict or anything, but she's, you know, partying a little bit and well, what happens not telling is, her husband about it. We get a very vivid picture that th- although they care about each other and they're reasonably good parents, uh but they're not spending any time with each other and they no longer have the same the same experience. Hmm. So, he's having you know, this he's he's he works, but he gets to stay home with the kid a lot. Mm-hmm. He's spending a lot more time connecting to that child. She works a lot elsewhere, and she is looking for uh, different modes of escape that don't involve the family. Um, there's a really telling scene later on, and I mentioned this earlier, where her daughter is told by another child at school, and again, they're four. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and the girl says, and it's really shockingly offensive, and I apologize for having to re- repeat it, but it's just, uh, your skin is the color of poop, therefore you're poop. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but also really gross and horrifying. And when she tells the little girl's mom, your, your little girl said this to my daughter, and it really Maybe, maybe you should talk. And, you, you know, should- this is actually... And Ashley did the incredibly responsible thing. Mm-hmm. She didn't get outraged. She wasn't... Mm-hmm. She was hurt, that you know, the four-year-old said this to her daughter, and, right? You know, and the, this this could have been totally innocent, but yeah. she needs to know that that's not okay. Yeah. yeah. And then the the mom Babette, it's uh, <laughs> just such a the most bougie name imaginable. Uh, Babette says, "Oh, that's that's horrible." But my daughter never said that. My, yeah, my daughter wouldn't what, say something. Would like never that, say yeah. any anything like that. Well, my daughter said she did. Well, your your daughter called my daughter a carrot head, and I, she's got red hair, I guess. Mm. But like, and I never. I never said anything to you, so really, who's the real monster here? Oh, yeah. And you're just sort of like, and, and actually, just look at this woman, just like the you, complete you realize, obliviousness. You realize you're being more racist when you say that, right? Yeah, just yeah. spectacularly racist. And she deals with there's a bit uh, at the beginning where Kristen loses her virginity to this male model who is working for Ashley. Mm-hmm. And she and, gets and, chlamydia. And she gets chlamydia in a subplot that, again, she she gets chlamydia from this model. It's first, her first time, she mm-hmm. gets chlamydia. Ah. 
rats. And, yeah, that and, sucks. And to, and, uh, to, to the show's credit and to her credit, she has total agency over the whole thing. It's not like mm. this big deal. I gotta mm. lose her virginity. And it's, it wasn't it's like not about it was, virginity. It's he, he just her he first time. He didn't seduce her. No, no, like, she's, she's she wasn't like, a predator. She was her idea. She was wearing a mask, so he couldn't even see how old she was, mm. even though she looks like her in her mid twenties. And uh, uh, and yeah, she she gets chlamydia, she gets chlamydia and actually takes her to Planned Parenthood. Over the course of the series, she has sex with another person. It's never mentioned. Yeah, okay, you know what though? That's <laughs> she that's disclosed. That's weeks. That that I'm not sure how long. First off, chlamydia is curable. That's true. I'm not sure how long it was. I'm not. Sure, I, I've I've never had chlamydia. Mm. I don't know how long it takes to get the all clear, but it's entirely possible it was long enough. I, I she should have. There should have said something. Well, I don't think he's gonna get it if it's cured. She still sort of said, should have said okay, something. She probably should have said in, something. In maybe she did. Like, I don't maybe, know. Uh, like you have the all clear. You're clear. It's one yeah. scene where they say, "Okay, if would have been you're, nice. You're good to sleep with somebody she, else." She and takes her spread. last pill yeah. and she throws it away and goes. <sighs> something. Like, it, it something. feels like a dangling plot thread. I, you're right. If mm. all, with all the time they have to work with, they probably could have resolved that a little better. But mm. anyway. Jessica Chlamydia, they go to Planned Parenthood, they get accosted by a guy a with pro, like a pro life ba- guy with like yeah. a baby doll on a cross telling them mm. that they're horrible, mm. you know, slots and horrible you know, they're just mm. just, a, just an awful man. Mm. And Kristen e- even gets, more even more awful than he first we first learn, in fact. Okay, because what happens is Kristen kicks him in the nuts. Yeah, he's, he's like accosting uh, Ashley takes Kristen to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, to, as a, as a sisterly to, show to, support. Yeah, to, to Kristen, hide it from mom and dad. Kristen kicks a protester in the nuts. The cops are right there. They arrest them both. Kristen th- is having a good time in prison. It's an adventure for her. Like, ooh, this is fun. Oh, can I get a copy of that picture? And all the cops think, think she's a delight. Meanwhile, Ashley, the black woman, is uh-huh. not having a good time. She is not treated that well at all by the same people. Mm. So Kristen gets out and thinks like, oh, that was an interesting adventure and I'm glad this all worked out. Ashley, on the other hand, is I was violated because I'm not white. Mm-hmm. And that's a really telling bit right there. And it's a really significant sort of you see like just like how different her experiences are from the rest of the family. And the whole thing with Babette that I forgot to mention earlier is that when she tells her white husband Mm. about what Babette said, Mm. like that's Babette said her daughter would never do that. He knows Babette. Yeah, he's he's there at school more often, and even he's just like, well, I just that doesn't that seems out of character for Babette. And Ashley's just like, what the? F- am I losing my mind? But and you uh, see it, and she's and, great. Yeah, at it. And, like I I love her whole subplot, uh, and yeah, it's it's all. Um, yeah, she begins to realize that her racial identity is kind of the only thing a lot of people see about her, and yeah. uh, she goes to have a dinner with other black people, and she can't quite relate to them because she has a multiracial family and white parents, and uh, yeah, she says like, "Oh, I, well, my my parents are white," and the black people say like, kind of dismiss her. Oh, well, that makes sense. It's like, well, well screw you, lady. Yeah. This this is just who I am, and she's feeling really threatened all the time. Uh, she ends up having to take like a, a self defense class and uh, you know, is uh, always in sort of fear of violence. A uh, fellow comes into her shop at one point. Oh God! And and it's just so like he starts taping up a Black Lives Matter poster in her window, but without talking to her, he just goes in and starts taping it up. And she goes up and says, "Could you not do that? Or you know, if you can, you talk to me before you do that." It's like, "No, no, no! You'll like this. It's okay." He's like a complete dick to her. Like, I got this, lady. Yeah. I'm on your side, huh? 
It's like, no, could you take that down? And he immediately says, what are you talking about? You don't want that. You don't believe in this. You're racist against black people, black person. And, 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 and calls her a race traitor right to her face and then storms out. Yeah. And she's completely flummoxed by this, nonplussed by this whole horrendous I, I, experience. I, I would go beyond nonplussed. It's, mm. it's, it's a state of constant frustration and, mm. and, and near panic sometimes. There's a great bit where... Um, uh, later on in the season, she's someone offers to buy her a store. Yeah. Said, your business is doing great. We don't need the storefront, but the mm. online business is an excellent business model. We're a big, uh, a, 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 they're like goop, you know, just some big, yeah, go- giant corporate thing. And they want to buy it. They want to buy her out. They want it. They want her to sell out. We'll give you four and a half million dollars. You can still run it. Uh huh. But, you know, you're, you're working for us now. Mm. And that's an enormous amount of security. Tim Robbins even just says, no, that's fuck you money. That's, that's the kind of money you want. If you don't have fuck you money, fuck you money is you have so much money, you don't need to worry about anything anymore. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like, it, you don't need to worry about burning bridges. You can just say, fuck you, you're good. Um, and uh, she, so she goes to take these meetings, and she's told to her face that as a woman and a person of color, you, you, you check two boxes. Like, well, this is and, a great hire for us. This will look wonderful in our portfolio. Well, and, and this is told to her by another woman who checks both boxes. So she's sort of, like, joshing around a little bit. Uh-huh. But she's, she, dead, she, she's also she, dead serious. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and she, she even says, very offended, I'm a, I'm a diversity hire. And, and she's sort of like... Well, in addition well, well, to yes, but you know, yeah. you are. But we do want what you're selling. And then there's a great shot of her like at the end of a big boardroom table, mm. as like this. Oh, this, sea is, of, this is a wonderful scene. Yeah, yeah, there's a sea of white male faces, and also the woman who called her a diversity hire, and also and one other woman, one yeah. other woman of color, mm. and they say her name very pointedly, just like see. <laughs> Look, we, we hire women of color. We're progressive. See, there's one there. <laughs> Holly Hunter also has a bunch of trouble with uh, uh, going corporate. Uh, she gets the idea. Okay, the oh, school. This, this is my least favorite subplot. This this, yeah. whole, this whole bit is is pretty. But anyway, uh, she, she her whole school program has gone kaput. Mm. She's fired for the whole. Well, actually, she's fired for budgetary reasons. It has nothing to do with the mm. whole going viral bit. But regardless, she's fired. But she still thinks it's a good idea. And finally, she realizes that, they, you know, they've been around the block. They know people. They went to college with people who are now quite rich. Like, legitimately rich as opposed to just mm. quite rich is what they already are. Um, well, they're already super wealthy. They're, but They're doing okay. They're doing better than anyone I know. As, as it turns out, they also know, like, a Steve Jobs. They, they know yeah. a billionaire. Yeah. And so they're just like, and he's pretty progressive. We should we should ask him if he'd be interested in, in, uh, in kicking some money our way. And so she goes to see him, and she pitches him the idea, and he likes the idea, and he gives her an office, and he says, no, 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 $600,000. You're thinking too small. I'm thinking like $10 million, and we make it a statewide campaign. Mm, right. And she's just like, oh, my goodness. Well, great. And that's when she finds out that Tim Robbins was cheating on her, so now she starts sleeping with this guy. Mm. And it's only just before she's about to like go on TV to you know, sell the idea to people. That uh, one of his underlings just says, okay, now if they ask you about the sweatshops. <laughs> and she's just like, I'm sorry, the what? They ask you about, I'm reminded of a scene in Alf, <laughs> of all things. Okay. It's like, oh, our neighbor's coming over, and Alf says, okay, I'm going to go hide so the neighbor doesn't see me. But he af- if he asks you about all the, tur- all the turkey carcasses in his lawn, play dumb, and just vanishes. <laughs> 
like, wait, wait, what? Yeah. So she's, of course, furious, and she mm. accuses uh, uh, this billionaire of only hiring her and only doing this thing in order to make his company look good because he's got sweatshops. Which, as it turns out, is totally true. 100% true, and he tries to equivocate, but then he says, okay, listen, I'll do something about it. I'll do something about it, I swear. Mm. Yeah. And then at the end of the episode, it's like the last episode, she goes on TV again, trying to believe him, saying he's he's doing something about it, mm-hmm. and they they pitch the idea on like Good Morning America, right. and then they have they take a caller, and the caller says, "Okay, yeah, so uh, it's nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a question about the child labor. Yeah, and that's when Holly <laughs> Hunter goes, "Okay, on no, live TV, she goes, okay, you know what." Screw it. This is all a smokescreen for his for his company. Mm. His company is doing terrible things. She I'm thro- out. throws him under the bus. And yeah. It, it's satisfying, but it's also kind of contrived. It's contri- it's, it's more plot-ish than like the other it's like of, the end of a movie. Yeah, all of the other plot points in this movie or this movie, this TV series <laughs> uh spring from like character dilemmas. Uh, her, yeah, that feels more like a plot dilemma. Yeah, it feels like the ending of a movie. You yeah, could end yeah. a Seth Rogen movie um, that way. You know, like it's not really a, a, a yeah. new. Because here's the thing here and now, and we haven't even talked about We'll talk about Kristen in a minute, but mm. that's most everyone else. But here and now, has the, there's a type of movie that we used to get a lot this mm. sort of serious drama about adults with adult problems. Like, there's a teenager in the cast, but the majority of the people in this show are not dealing with Mm. high school bullshit problems, which, listen, they seem like the biggest thing in the world when you're in high school. Right. But when you grow up, they suddenly stop being important and you start worrying about things like taking care of your family or existential ennui Mm. or... Uh, the, the horrible perils of the world at large and yeah a lot of the stuff that we worry about in teen centric stories just doesn't seem that important anymore mm. so this is a story about adults and we used to get a lot more of those you get stories like Kramer versus Kramer and Ordinary mm. People and these were big movies that made a lot of money and reached a big audience and although we occasionally get those in theaters now occasionally they, they find an audience to make money that's the kind of story that when people just say like, "Oh, what happened to all those?" They're on TV now. Yeah, that's what this or, is. This is that. This is that forty something. They're in theaters, but crisis. they're they're like smaller indie films yeah. now. They're not the gigantic blockbusters. Like, they're reaching a bigger audience on TV. Is my point. Okay. And you can do something like this mm. in that milieu. <laughs> Take a drink. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, in the big in the family uh, storylines, we have Kristen. Yeah, step uh, of the model. Got chlamydia, mm-hmm. had to go to the. We, we mentioned the whole prison drama. They they make but, a point of her. Her siblings make a point of how, just how damned charmed her life is. Yeah, and how she can screw up. And then she's the biological child, so they see her as sort of the de facto favorite. And they're Even, not wrong. Well, Ramon though is said to be the favorite. In fact, all the other kids call him Baby Jesus. Yeah. But even so, Kristen gets away with murder, like, repeatedly. That's Smokes true. pot in the house, which, you know, they're hippy-dippy parents, mm. but still, you should you should say no. Yeah, you know? she, she and she's, uh, through this, trying to find what her own identity is, and she has this sort of late-in-the-series realization that she wants her own sort of coming-of-age, like, for mm. the family to sort of acknowledge that, that she wants, she's coming-of-age, and... She is really brave. She's really forthright to the point where she doesn't have too much character. Yeah, she she you can see her try out. And this mm. is part of high school. This is part of growing up where you yeah. try out things but to see if that's you. But she doesn't ever fail. No, not really. So <laughs> well, like until it she does spectacularly. There's, there's a part yeah. right at the beginning where uh the, the whole high school subplot kicks off when uh 
the all the white kids at school want a white pride club because mm. there's clubs for uh, the black students, there's clubs for the Muslim students, but no. where, what and about white the people? White, white kids are feeling left out. And all the other people are saying, not unreasonably so, you have the world. Yeah. <laughs> you have everything else except these clubs. Why do you need this too? And at first, Kristen shows up with the white kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Saying, okay, I see the point that they're making here, but then, you know, she starts hanging out. Well, they're with, they're uh, young. Uh, they're used to seeing all of these like diverse clubs celebrating the the, the culture, and they're being raised in in a way where they're they're constantly being told that they're the villains. That's what they're complaining yeah. about. Why, why are you constantly vilifying white culture? Well, yeah, history is a big thing. Maybe read a book, but yeah, uh, they, they're, but they're, they're not bothering to do that. So they're I, seeing, yeah. I appreciate how they're articulating that too, because they're making part of the salient point without ever being convincing about it. Yeah. Well, because they're and, saying like, listen, I didn't do that stuff. And, and therefore, why am I, why should I be forced to suffer? And the reason is you're not suffering at all, mm. we're just taking you to task for what your culture has done. And being forced to confront what your culture has done is something that people throw in every other culture's faces all the time. Mm. So turnabout is 100% fair play, and the oppressed people kind of want like a safe space where they don't have to be told that white people are great all the time. Mm. And that maybe they can be great too. Like it's it, These are all reasonable yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. yeah. Well, and and I admire the show for confronting that because yeah. it's, it's part of part of the political conversation. It's a very political show. It's very political it has show. to be because we're living in political times. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kristen ends up spending a lot more time with uh, Farid's son Navid, mm-hmm. uh, played by Marwan Salama. Uh, he's great, by the way. Yeah. Great, great, great young actor. Really, uh, he really carves out a space on the mm-hmm. show. Um. Very, you know, he's sensitive, but he's funny, and he's got well, a dark we, sense of humor. He's really great, and we see him at very at the very first is just sort of a, a a point of contention and like a a cause of worry for his father. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I'm afraid, you know, he's Muslim, but he's also gender nonconforming, and that's just that's like every strike against him already, and he's yeah. he's in danger, and. They constantly use masculine pronouns, so I'm going to use masculine pronouns. But, yeah, we uh, we apologize if that's mm-hmm. if it's wrong. We we mean well, but the, the character uses masculine pronouns to describe himself. So yeah, um, maybe he changed his mind at maybe, some point because I get but, yeah. the impression he's he has not come to completely come to terms with who he wants to be. Yeah, by maybe. the end of this, because what happens is he ends up doing a school project with Kristen. They get a lot closer to each other. They understand each other more. Uh, at one point, uh, the evil rich white girls at school uh, draw a swastika on his locker, mm. and then they try to frame Kristen for it. So uh, Kristen and Navid uh, put on have masks a, and have, yeah, play a prank on him and yeah. sneak into their lawn while they're sunbathing, which they're kind of okay with. Yeah, how oh, what a fun day! Everyone's yeah. squirting us with squirt guns. Oh wait, that had like a, a kind of dye Sil- in it that silver, stains the skin. Silver nitrate was yeah, it's, yeah, which yeah leaves these horrendous stains on their skin. Yeah, which you can see later on are fading, so it's not permanent, but they're stuck mm. with it for a while. Well, I think it's a fun prank if you got access to that stuff, uh, especially if they're Nazis. So to hell with. Yeah, <laughs> um, but and, uh, yeah, they, that ends up backfiring on them because they end up putting on masks and beating them savagely. Yeah, so Kristen and Navid end up dating. Yeah, uh, and it's actually pretty sweet. And and, she, and she's really interested in in his faith. 
Yeah. So she starts looking into Islam and how mm-hmm. this is kind of a very comforting place to go. She goes to a mosque yeah. and it's, yeah. She was, she was raised without like a prominent religion. And as she is searching for an identity, this religion appeals to her and mm-hmm. she's got someone to talk her through it. And so she starts wearing a hijab like, like he does at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they decide to just confidently stride through the halls of school, holding hand in hand with both wearing hijabs, mm-hmm. both wearing makeup, both looking fabulous. And, and it's, and it's a really triumphant moment. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the students are like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, awesome. Yeah. But, Problem is, the uh, the evil Nazi students are not really into that. So ju- literally, as they're walking home from school saying, this is so great, oh, and there were no so negative hurt, repercussions whatsoever, so all the kids, and we know exactly who they are, mm. and so do uh, Kristen and Navid, mm. wearing masks but not hiding them who they are at all, beat them savagely. Mm. Just, it's it's really horrible. They're not in the hospital, like but it's blo- not. Like it's blo- bad. like bloody their face. Yeah, they don't have to go to them to, in the emergency room, but it's bad, mm-hmm. and that sucks. Yeah, it it hurts so much. It's, it's such so a painful thing. Yeah. And then on top of it all, Naveed's dad has gone completely down the rabbit hole of mental illness himself, and he has started flagellating himself. Mm-hmm. And his mom needs to take their their child away from his dad, and it's a complete mirror of what happened to his mom mm-hmm. where he, his mom was unwell and for the safety of the child so another adult had to take the child away mm-hmm. ouch mm-hmm. really really quite brutal mm-hmm. um the it, it all culminates oh yeah in, in a really bizarre cliffhanger and uh so there's been all this iconography about 11 11 mm-hmm. ramon has been having all of these visions mm-hmm. and, uh, sir, and like we haven't been talking about it but like it's everywhere there's 11 11 iconography mm-hmm. in every episode people no. point it out all the time people make decisions based on if they see the numbers 11 11 next to each other ramon has been seeing visions of like people covered in white powder like walking towards him in public mm-hmm. and there's fire imagery everywhere he sees like things on fire and like he throws his his niece off of a, a, a treehouse to save her from a fire that only he can see but she smelled it but so she it's, smelled yeah, it so it's which a little, is, a little which weird is and then in the last episode heading to the last scene we've, we've we're caught up might have forgotten something but we're basically caught up mm-hmm. uh he has received a message from a person on fire in his video game says, come see me at the top of the mountain. And he asks, who is this? And it says, 11-11. So he goes up. <laughs> Which is really spooky. <laughs> it is spooky. He, he goes off to the nearest mountain. Which is Mount Hood, because they're, they're in Portland. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Tim Robbins is visiting Uncle Ike. Uncle Ike, who mm. has said that there's something going on with Ramon, I can sense it. Mm. He's he's on fire right now, and Tim Robbins like, "What does that mean?" And then the clock strikes eleven eleven, and then Mount Uncle Ike Un- Un- yeah. Uncle Ike says, "Do you feel that?" And then Mount Hood erupts. <laughs> it ends with a gigantic volcano eruption, and there's only a few characters who we know for certain didn't mm. die. Yeah, that's it. That's the end and of the show. And that's the end of the show. Yeah. It's like Holly Hunter and Kristen seem like they're going to mm. live. Tim Robbins and Ike probably are far enough away that they're fine. Mm. Ramon is like, it ends with Ramon after the eruption still walking up that mountain. Mm. That's it. That's it. And at that point. Uh, I just looked it up. Mount Hood last erupted in the 1790s. Yep. 
still, still active though, right? It's technically still active. Like it could it, go. Like it could be a uh, thing. But anyway. Uh yeah, at that point, I was watching the show. I'm like, this is bullshit. Is that all there is? Yeah. I, there's a part of me that's really frustrated by this because when you have that cloying and kind of obvious, because everything else is at least quasi realistic, it's plausible. Yeah, well, and it's human drama. It's, you know. There, the, there was that, you know, this sort of, there's a lot of talk of the porous mind and sort of the, the, the reality of, uh, of like certain uh, religious symbolism. But there's, it's there all is, there's pretty a, grounded, though. There's, but there is a very slight thread of like the supernatural running through this. His, yeah. his visions were real. But it, it but wasn't in, just mental illness. But in the end, mm. it wasn't slight. There was no plausible deniability. It was a prophecy of apocalyptic doom, mm. at least for the immediate area. And that's when I, I, I seriously, that kind of threw the whole series into sharp relief. Because I was watching this as sort of like, you know, the whole magic bit is kind of a fun subplot. But what we're really looking at here is a story about how in times of great strife, philosophy mm. kind of breaks down and it becomes more about the here and now. It becomes more about the immediate moment and, mm. you know, all these big ideas we have about ascribing meaning to the world no longer really function. We just have to get through it together. And I'm watching this. I'm like, OK, I get it. It's a hard pitch and I can see why people didn't run into it. Like, ooh, we gotta see that show. <laughs> like, it's not oh, easy. Then, it's not an easy pitch. Yeah. There, also, there's no hook. But we'll that's get to, we'll the point. There's, there's yeah. no hook. But like at the end, I'm just like, I don't even think you, I don't even buy the show's strength of its convictions because it felt the need to go to that huge mm. volcano shit. Because the show basically told you at the end of the first season, the magic was the important part. It's like the entire show is made up of discarded flashbacks from Lost. <laughs> Where well, everything is a little too cloying, everything is a little too perfect, everything's uh, a little too symmetrical. And the twists are like really melodramatic and connects characters together who you might not otherwise have seen. And it ends up leaving the show on a really false note. It doesn't feel big, it doesn't feel tragic, it doesn't feel horrifying, it doesn't it doesn't have that shock of recognition where finally I get it. Mm. It feels contrived yeah. and I don't buy it. Um I agree. I, I think it started incredibly strong. Um, I liked all the characters and I liked their interpersonal relationships. And even though it's really ham-fisted, it's called Here and Now, for mm-hmm. God's sake. I admire that this is a TV drama that's trying to address the world as it is right now, today. Sure. Uh, you, you see that in certain shows that are sort of playing with it, setting up metaphors, doing it a little bit after the fact, um, like Law and Order, ripped from the headline sort of stuff, but that would have been months or even a year later. I'm reminded of uh, another HBO series, The Newsroom. Did you ever watch that? No. So uh, it was an Aaron Sorkin series, and it was all about a newsroom, like, you know, CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, but... Um, well, not Fox. Well, no, it was. <laughs> there was downloads of that, too. Oh, yeah. and And the idea was... We're going to show you what happened behind the scenes of the news. But they used real news stories. They just did the show like a year after them. So they had mm. some context. And so they could make sure that the newsroom was always yeah. on the right side of the issue, which is cowardly and bullshit, yeah. if you and, ask and, me. And like, he, it's, he, here and now it's is just backseat reporting. We, we, living here in the present, don't have the luxury of context. Yeah. We're le- de- dealing with it right now. And I th- feel like the show is a little bit messy by design. Because it is dealing with these things as they fly at us. So 
I'm I was a little bit more forgiving of certain things that were like abandoned or not really addressed, like the whole Henry subplot. Yeah, uh, because yeah, they're just sort of dealing with it as it comes. And sometimes in real life, something big happens and you do a shitty thing, and it just sort of has to trail behind you. Mm-hmm. One subplot we didn't mention was. Um, the Tim Robbins character has to write a foreword for his son's book. Oh yeah, I meant to get to that. Uh, uh, ends up sort of p- giving it to uh, like his TA. He has a sycophantic TA mm. who's like all just thinks he's the, the bee's knees, and he seems to connect more with his TA than any of his own kids. And the TA, he asked the TA, well, "Would you?" He, the TA says, "What if I read it mm. and, and tell can, you what I think?" I can and give then, you a few notes. Yeah, and then the he TA ends up comes back with a draft of the foreword. That Tim Robbins is supposed to write about his own son. Uh-huh. Tim Robbins <laughs> changes one sentence and then hands it to his own son, right in front of the TA. By the way, uh-huh. who really could have, like, if he had any shred of dignity, he could have said, "Hey, is that the one I wrote for you?" And would have been, I would have respected but him. I think the TA is okay with that, though. Well, here, and here's what happens: weird, weird, weird <laughs> way to go with the subplot. I like it though. Um, after all of that, the TA calls Tim Robbins on the phone. Tells him, I just proposed to my girlfriend, and hey, I have a question. Would you? And then he hits a car and, on his bike. And he dies. And he dies! That's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, he dies. And then the next episode, it doesn't begin at the funeral, but it's very shortly after, and Tim Robbins goes to the guy's fiance, and he just says, hey, I I, I, I heard, obviously, I'm, I'm here for the tragedy, and um, I, I can only imagine what you must, must be feeling right now. And she's like, yeah, I'm so glad I don't have to go through with it. Because we were going to break up. I didn't want to, yeah. And he was just like, oh, what, really? Yeah, I mean, he was spectacularly abusive, and I was afraid to say no, mm. and just the worst human being. And we had a pregnancy scare, and that's the only reason why he proposed. And thank God he died, because he would have been the worst father. And Jim Rahm was just like, holy shit. Well, and... <laughs> And they they mention that there's an email, so there's some like lurking evidence of that that he plagiarized this guy's work, uh-huh. that Tim Robbins plagiarized the TA's work. But uh, we're just gonna leave that there. It's a plot. It's gonna come back. Mm-hmm. And of course, that brings up an ethical dilemma. Can you, if you can get away with this scot free, yeah. and the person you're hurting is a dead and b a horrible person, where where's the ethic in that? Like, who's in the right? Like, uh, that's what that movie World's Greatest Dad was about. Um, where, um, did you ever see World's Greatest yeah, Dad? Yeah, I love that movie, actually. Yeah, I, think yeah. one, I think it's one of the better movies I've ever seen about grief. Yeah, Robin Williams uh, has a son, and his son is, not to put too pi- fine a point on it, a terrible person. Horrible human being. He's, he's, he says horribly sexist things. He's you know lazy. He's not smart. He's just a bad person all around. basically abuses his dad. Yeah, like, at least emotionally. And t- takes advan- yeah, emotional advantage of his dad. And... Uh, he ends up dying in an autoerotic asphyxiation accident Mm -hmm. and the dad decides to stage it as a suicide, an unethical thing and write his note. And evidently he was so, he's a struggling writer, the father Uh and the note is what's getting a lot of attention. The note is so profound that people start thinking this kid was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It was this like really profound soul that was just sort of hiding all of his genius. Uh And And it's a lie. It's not who he was. It's not who he is, but the father takes this as an opportunity to sort of, I guess, pay homage to his son by writing more and more and taking advantage of the grief. Yeah. But nobody's losing here. There's, nobody's losing out here. My, my favorite, my favorite scene in that movie, it's so fucking beautiful. Yeah. Cause if you've ever, and I hope you never have, and I hope you never, it never comes up. But if you've ever lost someone, mm. you'll know that like someone really, really close to you, mm. the grief never really goes away. 
Yeah. Like it, it, it's, it gets pushed away from the foreground, but it'll come back at a weird moment. You'll just see something mm-hmm. and you always connected it to this person. And all of a sudden you miss them so much mm-hmm. and you cry. And because his son was just such a creep. Uh-huh. That the moment for Robin Williamson later in the film is he's just at a newsstand and he sees just this whole newsstand of vile pornography. Uh-huh. And he just cries because it reminds him of his son. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chris Novoselic from Nirvana walks up to him and just puts his hand right. Chris Novoselic. <laughs> he just puts his hand on Robin Williams' shoulder and he's just like, I hear you, man. <laughs> like, it's such a great bit. <laughs> such an amazing bit. Um, I, I would normally, like, that, the whole bit with, like, the kid passing away happens late enough into the movie I normally wouldn't sell it but nobody saw that movie mm. and it is one of Robin Williams's greatest performances mm. and it's it's period it's also what, what uh, Bob Goldthwaite directed that yeah, one great and, movie and, and he, yeah he directed it incredibly well so like, I'm just a selling point I'm not mm. just gonna tell you to see a movie where Robin Williams plays the world's greatest dad you'll mm. think it's a sequel to yeah. RV like no this is a real movie it's okay, about so it. much good stuff I, I gotta go a little bit further off topic here but I, I got <laughs> I got get further off topic I got to see Bob Goldthwaite <laughs> And, and Dana Goulds uh, do a, sta- a two-in-one stand-up. They were both on stage together, just sort of riffing on each other. And if you know anything about Bob Goldthwait and Dana Gould's stand-up comedy, it is really fucking dark. They, mm-hmm. they try to go as dark as they possibly can. And, you know, talking about death and disease and dead family members. And and Bob Goldthwait's, like, bringing up all these people he knew and who are now dead by their own hand. And people who are, you know, people have passed away and people have died of cancer. He's talking about all these really dark things that he's experienced in his life. And uh, and Dana and like he knew Kurt Cobain, he knew all of the, like, these famous people. And Dana Gould is there listening and you know being very stern. And Dana Gould says, "So you, you knew Kurt Cobain? Yeah, that was and, and he's and he's gone now. And you knew Robin Williams? Yeah, I knew Robin, and he's gone now. Yeah, and you know all all of these people you knew, you're gone." And Dana Gould just sort of looks at him and says. So who would you say is your best friend now? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. And and it brought the house down. It was just hilarious. That's brutal. Um, I love Dana Gould so much. He's so funny. Dana Gould and Bob Gould are very very funny yeah. comedians. Um, but anyway, here and now, mm. a lot I admire. The performances across the board are pretty damn great. Yeah. I think the entire cast is fantastic. It, it, um, even even um, uh, even Duke, who has like so little to do, he has the most <laughs> awful scene in the entire series. There's mm. a scene at the end, but yeah, Raymond Lee. Even Raymond yeah. Lee manages to do something with Duke. Like no, Raymond Lee is very respectable uh, in the movie, mm. but. It's TV series, yeah. Ah! We're film critics. We can always do that. But um, Duke overhears his parents arguing. Mm. And there's a line of dialogue that is dramatically out of character for, for uh, Holly Hunter's character. Mm. And they use it in all of the pre... Like, previously on yeah. Here and Now, which is kind of antithetical to the premise of Here and Now, but okay. Uh, but she she says... she She yells at Tim Robbins... For having sex with, quote, a Japanese prostitute. Mm. First off, why is she bringing up the 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 ethnicity of the of mm. the sex worker? Mm. That's really out of character for her, and it's completely irrelevant to the conversation. Mm. They bring it up because when Duke hears that, he gets to blow up at his dad and just says, you knew my mom was a sex worker. Mm-hmm. What does this mean that you had to have sex with well, a sex worker of age? Well, it's it's an 
awkward scene. It happens at an awkward time. The, uh, it, the it, 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 it's just well, I mean, Duke is so like uninvolved with the drama. Like his, he has to force his drama on his dad at a random moment. So yeah. I actually think it's a good, genuine moment for it, Duke. It, it, I, I okay. that, that it kind of comes out of nowhere. Well, the fact that it's ingenuine makes it a genuine moment because like, and his dad just says, "Okay, you know what." literally never occurred to me yeah, well, and, that and, and, it would and, and, offend you because you know what I never planned to tell you I was sleeping with a sex worker I wasn't going to throw this one in your face I wasn't I wasn't like accessing some weird kink she was the sex worker I ended up with that's it. Oh, but the, the website he was going to was like it was like AsianHoneys.com or something. So he was seeking out an Asian, specifically an Asian prostitute. But, but that's his defense. And, and yeah, my point. and he. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying Tim Robbins is in the right they, they here. I'm saying it's say a really it, awkward. There, scene. There's all this weird cultural stuff between you, you know the no, way no. white people have fetishized Asian women and you know, all of that's lurking in that scene. And so he even says, "Okay." I had sex with an Asian sex worker. That was bad judgment. <laughs> you know, that was, it was well, all, all bad judgment. And again, it's all what's happening around them because mm. it, just before this, Ramon threw a four-year-old mm. off like off of a treehouse. And, and, and he runs away. And, and they're bolted into him, the yeah. ether and they're running around trying to find him. And a part of me, and like, Tim Robbins just like, now? Now is when we do this? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even know you knew that. What are we talking about? It's just I thought a, it was a weird good, scene. I, it was. I thought. I thought it was a good because they're just like at the foot of a staircase too. It's like they're yeah. not even in a place where they should be talking. Yeah. I think. I, but I think it was fitting for Duke, who is just sort of pushed off to the side so much for this show. Um. Overall, I think I liked it. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of really wonderful moments. I liked all the characters. Um, e- even the ones I disliked, I liked. Uh, <laughs> just because I think they were really sort of fully realized and all really well performed. And I do admire greatly how much they're trying to keep up. This is a, a TV drama that's trying to keep up with the real world. Not always succeeding, sometimes failing spectacularly. Right. But doing it in a way... Uh, like you said with the newsroom, they're not waiting until there's context in the culture. They're just trying to traverse the culture and doing it in a really sort of messy, meaningful, emotionally moving sort of way. And I, yeah. there was a lot that I found really bracing about that. Um, there's a lot that I like about this show. Mm. I think uh, the cast is uniformly pretty great. Mm. Uh, some more than others, but like everyone in the show is really good. And, mm. Uh, they get a lot of juicy material to work with because Alan Ball can be a very melodramatic writer slash yeah, showrunner. Yeah. Um, so there's usually, with, with the exception of Duke, who just doesn't get a lot to do, there's usually some good stuff for mm-hmm. them to work with. My problem with the show is a couple of things. Um, I mentioned it at the beginning, and I'm going to mention it again now. The effort to explore diversity within a very narrow field of class mm. is I mean it's a little hypocritical at best and con- frankly condescending at worst the idea mm. that we the rich and intelligentsia uh, are going to tell all of y'all what's mm. going on right I mean, that, now. That, and there's that, something that about is, that that's just it feels really out of touch it's the premise of the show and you know Alan, Alan Ball is white and he's also very wealthy so he's he is writing what he knows and he's again he's trying to tackle liberal guilt he didn't have to make a show about rich white people suffering with liberal guilt but that's what he decided to make his show about and yeah. i think uh, you can argue whether or not that's really 
entirely relevant in today's uh, well, I mean, sort, sort of dramatic uh, a, milieu, but take scene, another drink. There's a scene. There's a scene at the beginning, like the first episode, where mm. Tim Robbins is. It's his 60th birthday, and he's giving a speech to everyone, every character in the show. Mm. And he describes their family, this family that is mostly comprised of adopted children from throughout the world, mm. as this great or grand experiment. Hmm. And you can see the cuts of the kids' faces, and you can see that this kind of pisses them off. Yeah. That this is what we were to you. And there's a part of me that sees the entire show that way. Hmm. In terms of like, oh, this whole like premise of this uh, family that adopted all of these uh, kids from different parts of the world and brought them all together under one roof and one lifestyle. And even though they were all raised the same way, they were all forced to deal with the world through the lens of their, you know, their hmm. skin color or, you know, their ethnicity or everything. By calling it that grand experiment right at the beginning, Alan Ball's basically describing his show that way, where it's basically like mm, I don't I, actually. No, I, I disagree. I, th- I think I, th- I think the, I think he's con- I think he's uh, uh, condescending to that attitude. I, I think, but he's, I think really he's condescending kind of, to his own premise. I just think mm. like he didn't have to do a show about that. Mm. That's kind of forced and contrived if you think about it. I, I, it would be forced and contrived if uh, Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter were the only main characters in the show. All of these people are the main characters Mm. and they all have their arcs and they all have a lot of screen time and their entire episodes devoted to each one of these people. And we all get to know them very, very well. Mm. So it's not about this grand experiment that these parents are experiencing. We get to see that, yeah, that's part of who they are. And we also get to see that they're fuck ups Mm. and that they're not so pleased with themselves. And they're realizing that, you know, they're using this this phrase, the grand experiment, as kind of a way of admitting how pathetic it was uh, to, to think of themselves as these sort of saviors and how pathetic they are. And uh, I, think it, I think it plays fair. I, think it I, plays fair. I just don't think it, it casts yeah. them mm. or even the show for, of all the infinite number of things you can make a show about, mm. choosing this, yeah. the thing that even the characters deride at the beginning... Um, I don't think it, I don't think it does a lot of favors. I, I agree that it doesn't have a very rosy view of poverty. It sees poor people and and homeless people as uh, things to be shunned. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't really pick up on it, but yeah. Why is it that the the two of the birth mothers are abusive. The only <laughs> yeah. birth mothers that we yeah, see. The birth, birth mothers yeah. we see are abusive. Yeah, yeah. It's and and, and also from other cultures, mm. and it's like it's. It feels like they airballed a lot of stuff, yeah. and so as a result, you know, for a show that's kind of needs its convictions in order to thrive, mm. I found a frustrating lack at very key moments, not throughout, but at key moments, and it kind of torpedoed the show, and especially the ending, which just made it all feel like kind of a cosmic joke. Um, I can say that although there are a lot of things I like about it, I don't think this was canceled too soon. I think, oh, okay. I think I can't imagine it going anywhere after that volcano that isn't either really committed to this whole supernatural well, element, which yeah. I do not want another John from Cincinnati. Thank you. Or just kind of ignores it and moves the fuck on. Yeah. Because at that point, when you, once you have that volcano incident, well, I think it's that, not going to be about the here and now anymore. Right. It's not about a fictional reality. It's not about a fictional future in which there was this horrible disaster yeah. in Portland. Well, I, and I it just like, doesn't fit anymore. I feel like uh, the volcano was clearly a, a need to wrap this up. Like they, mm. I don't think they intended to go on after the volcano. You think they knew they were canceled? I think so. At that point, I think they knew they were canceled. Uh, maybe. And, like they were probably 80% sure they were canceled. So they maybe had a plan to go forward uh, after the eruption, but 
the eruption was the button on the series. And uh, it made, if you see it as the end of the show, like, that's it. It makes a little more sense. Yeah, but yeah, it's I, fine. I, I, it's I, just, don't, I don't think it's, like, it's not I, an elegant ending. I agree. I think it wasn't canceled too soon if they were going to move forward from the eruption. If you cut off that last episode, which I think, and they were going to have something like maybe a little bit more intimate, where all this symbolization, symbolism was heading, and it was going to sort of affect them more personally rather than this big sort of macro story that suddenly invaded, then, which I think Alan Ball was going to sort of stretch out that mystery a little bit more had he been given more time. Yeah. That's the show I want to see. And that wasn't canceled too soon. But the ending we got... Kind of ruined it. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it it didn't end strong. Like it was kind of shocking. It's like, oh, oh, wait. No, you think not, about it for a second. That's not like, very that, satisfying that at all. Doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it doesn't make it makes as much sense as any of the other I, and I, I had, stuff. But, but I I had appreciated all of that, like supernatural or semi supernatural, and you know, sort of uh, uh, spiritual stuff. There was a lot of talk about the porous mind, minds that can. Mm essentially get thoughts from the kind of reach into Plato's realm of ideas and just sort of snatch things out. Yeah. Even if they're not your ideas, you can sort of grab them anyway. Uh, that that's a thing that's that people have talked about. And, sure. um, I don't mind, I don't mind there being elements all, of the all, fantastic all of the, all. all of those fantastical things I think I was on board with until it turned into the sort of the big yeah, climax. What, yeah. Once it turns into a big Hollywood movie mm-hmm. thing at the end, I just, that, then it stopped being, you know, it reminded me a little bit, although I think this is a better artistic expression because it's a movie uh, I'm a little bit of Personal Shopper okay and the yeah, way yeah. that Personal Shopper Personal Shopper is uh, Olivier Assayas he did that yeah, one yeah um, it's a Kristen Stewart starring movie in which uh, she quite a good film too, it's an excellent yeah. film and people did not see it enough mm-hmm. um, she plays a personal shopper she works for a supermodel supermodel mm-hmm. can't go out in public and do a lot of things for herself so she goes out and does the shopping for her and mm-hmm. she tries on clothes for her to see if they're mm-hmm. different specifications and then that's it but what she is also and this is kind of incidental to a lot of the movie mm-hmm. she's also a spirit medium yeah and she can see ghosts and recently, her s- twin brother, her twin brother, twin brother had died of a congenital heart defect that she that also she, has. Yes, yeah. So she's facing down her own mortality. So while she is going through this drama about her feelings of inadequacy in compared to her boss and possibly being involved in some sort of sinister mystery involving her boss. Also, there's a little bit of supernatural in there, and mm. it very rarely becomes the point. Except at the end, when they put a little button on it, and yeah. it's really creepy as hell. <laughs> it's really, I like it. I like it. Great a lot, ending. Yeah. That ending woke me up. That ending was like, oh, God. <laughs> I don't even know how I feel right now. Like, great, great movie. And if you're still not sure if Kristen Stewart's a great actor, she is. See that movie. Oh. She is. If you're not sure she's a great actress, where have you been? I don't know what movies you're watching, but this is a good example <laughs> to get you back on board. Um, so that's it. That's uh, Cancel Too Soon. Uh, we would like to thank uh, Zachary one more time for recommending Here and Now, even though we I'm, didn't I'm, think it was... I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, even though we didn't think it was Cancel Too Soon, mm-hmm. uh, it was an interesting watch. And mm-hmm. just the cast alone. Yeah. I yeah. could just watch Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter act for 10 hours. And I did. <laughs> and that was a good time. Um, so thank you very, very much for that. Uh, if you want to join us on Patreon, um, every year we do have a sweepstakes. But in the meantime, you do get to vote. 
every month for one episode of Cancelled Too Soon. Uh, every Patreon tier can vote for that. Yeah. At the, oh, oh, at tiers above that, you start getting bonus episodes, bonus podcasts, commentary tracks. We're doing a huge retrospective of every Star Trek episode ever. Um, but you also get to vote. And this month, we had our listeners vote for uh, a primetime soap opera that didn't last very long. And the one you picked by like a razor margin. It was like really, it was really close. Super close. Uh, is Pasadena. Uh, a soap opera set in the town where I grew up, so this should be really, really interesting. You, you, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Pasadena, but you will have to do all the commentary yeah. as to how uh, accurate it is to the town's character. It was created by Mike White, who is from Pasadena, so hopefully he knows not to screw it up mm. too bad. Mike White uh, also wrote School of Rock. Mm. And a bunch of other films like Orange County. and Chuck and uh, Buck. And, and yeah, Chuck and Buck's a good one. Um so um, so we'll have that for you uh, coming up on the next episode of our show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have other podcasts, uh, Critically Acclaimed. We're about to record a new episode of that to go out on Tuesday, it looks like. Uh, that's where we review a whole bunch of uh, new movies every single week. We have The Two Shot, where uh, we review one of the most notoriously bad movies ever made and pair it up with one of the best movies ever made. Uh, we just did an episode about Three Dev Adam, a.k.a. Turkish Captain America and El Santo versus serial killer counterfeit money Spider-Man. Uh, three Dev Adam was punchier. punchier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and we paired that up with Warren Beatty's woefully underappreciated but absolutely classic Dick Tracy. So that was a really fun episode mm. as well. Whitney, am I forgetting to plug anything? Uh, nope. Great. Glad we did this. So listen, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on this journey of Cancel Too Soon. We'll be back soon with yet another failed television series. Uh, we're on Twitter at CancelCast, also at Critic Acclaim. That's the banner under which we have everything. I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And that's a wrap. We'll see you next season. <laughs>